So, how's your week? Sorry, okay. Um, oh, sorry, let me, like, actually start this episode. Because I always, like, don't like starting them, but I'll start them. <laughs> like, I don't like doing, like, hey, everybody. Okay. Hey. Hi. Welcome back, everyone. This is just Sandra, and we're doing another installment of the series that we didn't really, I don't know, I don't think we ever named it. <laughs> it's just the series of us uh, interviewing Central Americans and people in the diaspora of the Isthmus and wherever they ended up that are not in hubs like LA, California, DC, Houston, New York, and just trying to kind of engage with more people that also follow us because we genuinely want to build on the relationships that we're making with other people but also to just like get a different perspective because we understand that i mean sam and i are both from california we're both from la and that's a very common narrative to hear so yeah so this week oh i just heard myself so this week <laughs> We have Olivia, who is the scientist in makeup. <laughs> you're on Twitter. You're on Central American Twitter, and that's how we found you. And you're just like someone that's always been really down for us, and we like love you. So that's why yeah. we wanted to just like reach out to you. And you're from Massachusetts. Are you from actually Boston proper, or are you from like near Boston? I just wanted to ask that. Um, so I'm, I was raised in the Boston area. I was born in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and then raised in Somerville, which are two neighboring cities of Boston. I also went to school in Boston, so. <laughs> okay, okay. So can you give me a full introduction of who you are? Like your name, your nationality and ethnicity and all of that. So yeah, uh, so my full name is Olivia Kugler Umanya. I was born in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and I am a Salvadoreña. Both my parents are Salvadorian. Um, they came here in the late 80s during the Civil War crisis. And, you know, they made a life here and became part of the Salvadorian community here in Massachusetts, which is actually in small pockets of the actual state. More about me, I'm actually a graduate student right now, working on my PhD at UMass Medical in Worcester, Massachusetts. Whoa. Whoa, okay. Um, well, I wanted to ask you about the song that you brought in this week, which is a song that I really liked from an album I really liked, which is Guerra by Residente, who is half of Calle 13. And, I mean, we can listen to that right now. And then we can discuss the song afterwards. Is that cool? Yeah. Yo te miro y mi rabia te toca Cuando grito sin usar la boca Y mi furia se come a la gente Porque muerde aunque no tenga dientes El dolor no me causa problemas Hoy los dolores recitan poemas El mundo me los como sin plato El miedo a mí me limpia los zapatos El fuego lo derretió Y las pesadillas no duermen porque piensan en mí Hoy puedo ver lo que el otro no vio Y los pongo a rezar aunque no crean en Dios Hoy las lágrimas lloran antes de morir y a los libros de historia los 
Hoy yo vine a ganar y estoy hecho de guerra. Y hecho de guerra. Y estoy hecho de guerra. So did you like the pick? I did. Okay, so this is an album that I was like really excited for when it came out. I listened to Alt Latino, which is like the NPR like Latino music show, and they interview Residente, and that's like kind of how I like got into the album itself. He talked about like the his inspiration for the album uh, that he took like one of those like DNA 23andMe tests. And he got, he got his results and he was like, oh, this is really interesting. Like, uh, he's Puerto Rican. So obviously in, uh, in Puerto Rico, they have all, they have like the Yoruba, like the indigenous Tainos and then like the Spaniards. So he was just kind of like trying to explore the multiple facets of like, I guess, like race, ethnicity. And he collaborates with a lot of people all over the world. And the one guerra I think that you sent me, I think that particular collaboration is in Russia. Um, So I actually am a huge Residente fan. I've been following them since his Calle 13 days, mm-hmm. Atrévete, all his um, singles with when he was part of that duo. Uh, so what's interesting was he wanted to write a song about war and he went to Russia yeah. to work with the symphony and he thought he wanted this really epic song about war and realized it didn't catch what capture what he wanted and he ended up going to the Caucasus, which mm-hmm. is an yeah. area in Eastern Europe that is in constant turmoil. And he worked with musicians from those three particular areas that make up Caucasus, which is Armenia, Ossetia, and Georgia. And basically brought these these musicians that come from these areas that are always at war with each other. And he created this song. To me, it spoke to me because my parents, you know, came to this country because of the Salvadorian Civil War, you know, um, I don't know if you remember about a week or two ago, there was that whole Salvi war trauma hashtag going around and people sharing stories. Yeah. It, it reminded me of about the song and, and I, I really like how he you know incorporated these musicians and and used his platform to give them a platform highlight their situation yeah 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 that that whole album is very powerful in the kind of unity of like music just i guess the idea of like coming together and creating and i don't know it it was it was a really interesting and and definitely really experimental rap album and i really 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 liked it and it was like beautiful it was like and it won like grammys and shit and it was a fucking good ass album so i really liked it and i'm really happy you brought it (laughs) well yeah um if people are interested he has a whole like about an hour or hour and a half documentary where he showcases each musician, you know, each person that he worked with in this album. So it brings you more of the story of where these songs came from. I also really recommend, this is like not Residente, but um, I don't know if it's his younger sister or if it's his uh, cousin. Oh, Ile? Ile? Yeah, I also it's really love his love half-sister. His half-sister. I love her too and I love like her album it was like super like salt it has like salsa and then it just like also has a lot of like roots of baladas and it is a beautiful album 
as well. Yeah, I actually found that album last year, the end of last year, and I I really enjoy it. It has a very like old mm-hmm. soul to it, like old yeah. Latin soul to it, and I I really enjoyed it. I've also been her fan because she was like. The female voice you hear PG-13. in Diana mm-hmm. is usually her. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I've always been a fan. So I was, I was very happy um, to find that album, and that that's also a great album as well. Okay. The kind of setup of these interviews, I don't know. I I, I feel like Sam and I are gonna take very different approaches just because we're very different people. But right. I definitely want to sort of have a focus on why you feel i i'm someone that is like very very proud of like where i grew up in i don't live in proper la i live uh, in a city that borders la uh and i'm like i've been someone that's very like oh yeah i'm from huntington park yeah i'm from huntington park i'm from hp especially when i was in high school in la like very far away from where like my actual city is and everyone was kind of like from koreatown or from like echo park so everyone was like from la la and i'm like i'm not from la like I'm different. <laughs> so, um, yeah, and especially now with, like, gentrification and stuff, like, at least in L.A., and I'm sure in other parts all over the place, everyone right. is, like, very protective of, like, this communal identity. So I'm, like, very interested in, like, how, I guess, Massachusetts and Cambridge and, I guess, like, Boston and all these areas have really influenced and shaped your identity as like a salvadoreña and a central american woman uh so so one thing that i found very interesting in speaking to um salvadoreños uh through twitter who live in these like mexican dominated areas was that effect of of dealing with mexicans and you know having to kind of sometimes shield yourselves from their um their constant teasing and stuff and i didn't have i didn't feel that way my parents i don't know if it it was they decided this or whatnot but i was raised predominantly in in a salvi-centric household and a salvi-centric community Mm -hmm. um so growing up it was very easy for me to be proud to be salvadoreña because I was surrounded by other proud salvadoreños. And for my family, it was very important for me to keep that pride up and not give in to, how do I put it, not to lose my way and completely dismiss that part of my identity and embrace, you know, my other part of my identity, which I acknowledge um, being American. So their worry was more of, of that, like, they don't want, my, especially my parents, they didn't want their children growing up and looking down at the country or looking down at Central America in general. And that was, that's part of me being raised. I guess I, I really wonder that kind of environment. Like, I think about, like, D.C. and how, and, like, I guess other communities that are pretty much completely like the like the latinx community in that area is like salvadoran so i guess i i think about that sort of identity where it's like very like you don't question it because it is so innate go ahead (laughs) i'm sorry (laughs) i guess the the way i always think about it and i mean like i grew up in like a predominantly i mean i grew up like right next to east la and south central so i 
I had a very like Mexican oriented experience, but it's like also I didn't really personally feel this sort of discomfort or this sort of erasure, but I also feel like my family, both my parents, aren't people that are very, I don't want to say that they're not prideful like they are, that they're like from Mexico or, or from El Salvador, but they're just like people who aren't like, we're like this because we're like, we're Salvadoreño or like my dad also like immigrated like very young to the u.s like he was like 15 because he was like Mm -hmm. becoming a soldier essentially and they were like bye so he as much as he goes back to el salvador and is still very like salvadoreño in a lot of mannerisms and the way he speaks it's um i don't know i guess i just like don't separate a lot of like my mexican identity with from my salvadoran identity like i just what i assumed were just mannerisms that we all kind of had i didn't know that they were distinctly mexican versus distinctly salvadoran so i guess that's kind of a sort of thing that i feel i guess we have in common in that like you don't really question it because this is just like how you are this is your identity this is like your life you're not being repressed no, not not in the same sense that people who who live in in predominantly non-Salvadorian or non-Central American communities. Obviously, we feel it differently in aspects of media and stuff. You know, my my parents. <laughs> I used to hear my parents all the time complain. Oh, here we go again. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mexico getting represented. You know, where's El Salvador? I mean, one of the best examples in terms of media was there's this like show called Nuestra Belleza Latina which oh shit (laughs) I don't watch it but my mom watches it my mom watches it too a little bit (laughs) you know and I remember um I forget what I don't know what season or what year there was a Salvadoran contestant and how happy that made my mom like she was so excited and she's like oh my god there's like you know there's one of us up there like we never see like I never see that so yeah so in terms of like interactions with people there isn't a lot of Mexicans up here to begin with in Massachusetts there's definitely a lot more Salvadoreños and other Central Americans um, huge Guatemalan families here Puerto Ricans and Dominicans and stuff so those are the people that I interact with and like I said the way my parents raised me it was in a predominantly Salvadorian community and and it all had to do with you know they were part of a, a church community that was uh, predominantly Salvadorian. Or were they um, um, so evangelist or was it Catholic? They were not uh, evangelicos. They were um, <laughs> um, what um, Seventh Day Adventists. Oh shit! Sorry, I had a, a roommate that was that. That family was that. That's interesting. My parents were very protective of us. It mm-hmm. wasn't just because they were Salvadorians, you know, but it was also we're se- we're Seventh Day Adventist Salvadorians. Bug. <laughs> yeah no i honestly do feel like in terms of like religiousness i do feel like if families are more religious they are more in my opinion in intertwining that more with like their cultural identity both of my parents are like kind of religious but like and i feel like maybe that's also why they're kind of like yeah i mean we're like latino but like we're just us (laughs) so yeah that's really interesting i you know, I like it's it's weird sometimes 
hearing other people talk about their experiences being salvadoreño in in america because in some ways we do share a lot in common obviously the food you know certain colloquialisms and whatnot but in many ways because i was raised in this very closed religious community there's a lot of things we don't share in common you know my, my mom we didn't listen to what she calls secular music you know we only listen to christian music you know, very specific <laughs> christian music so at parties we didn't grow up listening to cumbias or anything like that Ooh. i had to listen to that from you know my cousins or my friends mm-hmm. so in so in some ways i related to salvadoreños but in many ways it's very hard for me to explain like I can't do that, or I can't dance, or I can't go to your party, you know? <laughs> wow. Yeah. <laughs> That's crazy. I can't you know, even think it, that. It, <laughs> I know. And, in, and you know, when I explain to other Latinos that, they're just like, you know, that's, that's part of my identity. Mm-hmm. Like, this is so strange to me. And I'm like, yes, it is strange. <laughs> I'm not here... Um, to deny that so i i've been really interested in your phd and like i guess you're doing how do you say it? i can never say it. immunology immunology yeah. immunology immunology how far are you in it so currently i am in my fourth year mm-hmm. they tend to take six years or so depending on your like science project and how long that takes to finish mm-hmm. um so i'm pretty far along compared to a lot of graduate students. So uh, what exactly are you doing? Like, I'm, I'm, I really like STEM. I feel like I could have done STEM if I was, like, a little less lazy. But <laughs> I wanted to, like, cheat myself into STEM. Uh, so uh, in my lab, um, we focus on immune responses to the flu. It's more of, like, basic understanding of how those immune responses occur when you're infected by virus and how can we use that information to improve upon vaccines and whatnot. And I got pretty fortunate to get a really cool project where I study the aging immune response. So um, for everyone out there listening, as you age, your immune response takes a change. Mm-hmm. It has a reduced number of these two very important uh, cell populations, and they're called T and B cells. And those are the important ones in order to mount a protective response. And so my project deals with looking at those B cells and seeing what their responses are, figuring out what, what information I can use to improve vaccination in aged populations. Wow, you sound like so amazing. <laughs> I'm just like, wow, I'm over here like recording a podcast in my room while you're over here making like vaccine improvements. Fuck. Well, I'm not, I'm trying. <laughs> I mean, it's cool, it's cool. We all, we're all good at something, right? But 
I guess I'm thinking about like wh- how why you wanted to even go into doing like a PhD and like doing immunology. I mean, that's I feel like pretty specific. And I guess I'm thinking about doing grad school. And as of now, it's just really hard for me to like really conceptualize like what I would like to do versus like oh do I want to do a master's, a PhD? It's a it's a big decision. Right. And I really dislike when people just kind of choose to go to grad school. It's like you don't just like choose to go to grad school. Like you should know. I- what you want to do no i definitely agree with you um probably the biggest mistake for people when thinking about making that decision and and going forward and especially a phd is thinking oh well i don't know what the hell to do so i'm just going to do a phd i'm like this is going to be at least six years of your life that you're committing to something really really big yeah so for me to be honest with you when i started my undergrad, I want to do some kind of research. I I didn't know what that was. I didn't know what that meant. Mm-hmm. But that's what I wanted to do. And PhD was not, you know, buzzing in my head. And it wasn't until, you know, I started my undergrad in at UMass Boston, and I interacted with people. And especially my first mentor is when I thought about getting a PhD. Because yeah, I, you have to think, you know, the community that I grew up with, you know, my parents don't have an, what you would call, you know, experience in academia. Yeah. Um, and most grownups that I grew up with definitely don't either. Uh, so I didn't have people I could look up to who had PhDs or were pursuing a PhD. Mm-hmm. So it was a very boring thing to me. It was like, oh, that's like something I wouldn't do. You know, I'm just like, you know, a little salvadoreña. <laughs> like, Yeah imposter syndrome essentially like i'm not going to be able to do this like and even when you are doing it like i'm not even doing it like yeah so it it literally it was right when i was looking for a lab position at the school at umass boston that that was brought up to me and it was my first mentor i remember when he interviewed me for the lab position he had all these questions for me and i was so intimidated because here's this man with a PhD and he has his lab and I'm like and I was like I'm some little undergrad <laughs> yeah <laughs> who doesn't know anything but I think he saw potential in me and he was like you know what here's this person who wants to explore our options you know let me give her a chance in my lab and see how this goes I've been pretty fortunate to have people like him not just him but other people who've kind of guided me to where I am today because it it, it did take a lot of encouragement from people outside of myself to pursue it. <laughs> I mean, even when I had the conversation about, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to go for it. I'm going to get my PhD with my husband. I was still scared. I was like, am I making the right decision? Have you felt like, so obviously there's all these conversations about a lack of women in STEM and a lack of diversity whatever or a lack of like basically racial inclusion of people in hard sciences or whatever you know quote quote hard sciences mm-hmm. how how does that really like because i feel like as you go up from like mm-hmm. being an undergrad to like now a uh, master's to phd you probably see the drop off like you see less and less brown people as you yeah. go higher and higher up and less and less women yeah how do you, I guess, yeah. how do you deal with that? Like, real, on the real. Well, less women know. 
Um, I think the drop-off for women happens after they get their PhD because during your PhD, I have pretty flexible hours. You know, you, you do work hard, but they are your own hours um, for the, if you have, you know, a mentor who allows that. It's right after you're done with your PhD and you have to make that decision of, do I have children? How do I deal with that? And pursuing my career. And there's a large drop off of women who, you know, decide to take a different approach because by the time I'm done with my PhD, I'm going to be in my 30s, you know, and I have a husband as well. So mm -hmm. you think about how, how do I structure my life, still have a career and still have and still be a mom. And there's a lot of women that make the decision and they're like, you know, I'm going to do what's best for my kids. And they fall the wayside. Um, in terms of race, you definitely see the pooler of brown people get smaller, smaller, and smaller. There is programs that try and promote diversity within STEM. <laughs> um, they try. They try. But, you know, they try. You know, they try. Like you know, I was part of them during my undergrad. There's one in specific called IMSD. That that's their goal is to find you know people who are you know from underrepresented groups to give them a chance you know to work in a lab you know they'll they'll fund instead of having to volunteer you know they get funding through that um, program that's cool they can work in a lab and they have money which sometimes is an inhib you know and it's it's it inhibits yeah. a lot of people from volunteering. At certain places like well i can't volunteer i have to live <laughs> yeah you have to work yeah i have to work i need to make money and i don't survive that i don't make money that program provides that you know it's like well you don't have to worry about that you can leave your full-time job and work full-time in a lab and not have to worry about you know making the bills so they're out there but I, if well do you feel like there's actually enough support though for like women and people of color in stem because i i've heard a lot about this from from like masters and phd candidates too in the anthro department it's it's small enough that you're actually able to really have a relationship with uh mm -hmm. grad students and yeah I, I remember this like great presentation that um a PhD candidate did about the lack of support that women in graduate programs have and that when they have maternity leave at least in the UC system we have quarters they only have one quarter of maternity leave which is only two and a half months which is like and then they have to go back which is like crazy yeah. to me that it's like okay you have to do that and then also women tend to publish less because they want to have a stronger case so they'll put more time in between publishings and then in terms of like a lot of people want to hire people based on like how many published how many things have you published how many things have you published so then there's all these things that are like end up stacking up against women that may or may not be intentional right. but it just doesn't uh, it doesn't support them and then there's like also cost of child care and then if you're a single mother and this is like so many things that just like pile on I'm sure and then if you're like a student of color then you have all these other things that you're probably having to deal with as well STEM is a in my opinion at least the way that I saw it is very unforgiving like if you're not if you're not there or you're not good enough then there will be someone that will but I mean also yeah. I I went to an R1 research institution so that's just like the environment that it was but maybe in other places it's not like that so I agree with you in women not having support especially when 
it comes down to it's sad because a lot of the time they have to choose either one or the other right so it's either i have children or i pursue or try to finish my phd it can never be because you know they say there's support there but it's just it's not enough Mm -hmm. um i'll tell you right now you know in in my class several of the men you know their wives have had children and they don't seem as affected but then when you ask me and my female colleagues, they're like, are you crazy? I, I wouldn't even think about doing that. And yeah. Like, I just, it's, it, how am I going to fit that in to my already busy schedule? Mm-hmm. Um, there's also, um, there is this underlying misogyny that a lot of people don't like to address. I've had my colleagues actually tell me stories about them uh, interacting with previous mentors and them telling them things like, you know, like pursuing, and this is after they're done with their PhD. This is, it's probably, it's probably the time where a lot of women get it the most. It's like, I'm going to say my lab mate, she's a postdoc right now in my Mm -hmm. lab. And her previous mentor basically told her um, she wants to become a professor, which is, hard enough as it is yeah and he basically told her that he should she should reconsider something else something easier and we know why he was having that talk with her because she's a woman yeah (laughs) and i hear this all the time like my sister-in-law um who also got a phd she was she was in harvard her mentor like brought her into his office one day and said we need to have a talk and she's like why do you want to talk about like what do you have to talk to me about and it was about you know you have to think about having children and all these other things all these subjects that women are approached about that men would never have to hear about yeah like no one's gonna go up to a man and be like oh when are you gonna have kids mm-hmm yeah, because because <laughs> like, yeah, they're not gonna have the kids. Like they don't have kids. Exactly. They don't. They don't have to think about that. But which is also kind of like, damn, are you like a shitty dad? Like, come on, like you don't. <laughs> it just like kind of bothers me that like men are also thought of like, oh well, he's like he's gonna be a father, so he he'll still be able to commit. Which is like, I mean, like fatherhood is like what? a commitment too, right? Like, isn't it? Yeah. No, know. it is. But it's interesting that the responsibility gets shifted on women. Yeah. It always gets shifted on women. Uh, (laughs) I'm just like, man, I want to get like a PhD because it's like, I just want it, you know? I just want Mm -hmm. the the degree, like I want the doctorate. But then I think about all these things and yeah, it's like, I'm 22, so I'm still very like, I don't really want kids yet. But I st- that is something definitely on the back of my mind. It's like, when do you fit in portions of your life? Because essentially, mm-hmm. I hate I hate this phrase, but I mean, it's true. Like, there is like a, a, a timer, like for at least to have kids. I mean, it's getting easier and easier as, as like science gets better. But I mean, right. it, it puts a strain on your body after a certain age to have kids. Like, it's like more dangerous. And motherhood yeah. mortality is like getting worse in the US anyway. So it's like, we should definitely not be having kids like after a certain age because then it just puts you so much more at risk. Yeah. You know, I, I have met women who, you know, have children um, while they do pursue their PhDs. And what I've come to learn from them is you have to build a good support system. Mm, so yeah, this isn't sure. just 
this isn't just like my husband is gonna help me this is literally like i have a friend who can take care of my children mm-hmm. i have my grandparents or my parents live you know nearby these women create these communities to raise their kids they don't yeah. think about it as me and him or me against the, you know like me taking care or taking the responsibility for that they they're very good at creating support systems yeah now, and it's something that i i think about because i'm i'm married and me and my husband have these talks like when are we gonna have our kids you know and i you know and i keep telling myself you know i want to have them after my phd but also i'm scared <laughs> i know um because after your PhD is another huge transition period. Whereas, where am I going to take this PhD? How am I going to use this PhD to propel my career? Yeah. So, yeah, there's like no real, there's no right time. No. And I think that's what I've come to learn from speaking to my mentor, who is a woman and, you know, had her children while she was a postdoc. Um, yeah. And I, when I speak to other people as well, it's like there is no right time. I actually had, um, when I was interviewing for graduate school, I had a very interesting conversation with a PI that interviewed me. PI is, is the head scientist, by the way, <laughs> for mm-hmm. people listening in. Print, is, it, is it the principal um, investigator? What is it? I don't know. I don't know what it stands for. Primary, sorry. Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> Same thing. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, so I had a very interesting conversation with her. So, you know, she did my interview, you know, figured out like, does she know what she's talking about or not? And then we kind of started talking about just stuff, women's stuff, yeah. <laughs> which was interesting. And I asked her, I outright, how did you do it? How, how did you manage to have a family? And she's like, you have to make time. <laughs> which is like, obvious, but like, you can't just yeah, make no, but- time. You know, like, and what she meant by that is like, there is no right time. If you wait for a right time, they're going to be sitting there and you're not going to have any children. Yeah. There really is no right time. So the best thing you can do is build a community around you that's going to help you and not be ashamed of it. Because I don't know. I feel like there's this thing here in the U.S. about... And they like harp on it all the time about like the nuclear family, right? Oh yeah, it's yeah. Mom, dad, and the kids. And I realize how stupid that is. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Realistic, it is. Well, yeah, because if you really think about a lot of like Latinx communities, like when you go back or like when I go back to Mexico and Salvador, like everyone lives within like three blocks of each other, and everyone's together constantly. Like not just like your mom and your yeah. dad and your brother. It's like your abuelos, your tios, like your bisabuelos and all the 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 great grandchildren and your cousins and everyone is all together and everyone just like takes care of each other and it's like this massive network of people vecinos and like the fucking lady that runs the store like everyone looks out for each other and it's like really beautiful that it's just like this like interwoven network and it when they say like it takes a village like it's true like and a village should raise you know you shouldn't just depend on two people for your entire life so no and and that's what I've seen, not just in Latino America, but in other cultures. Yeah. You know, I talk, you know, because I'm I'm part of STEM, and yes, there isn't as many, like, you know, Latinx or, you know, black people within our field, but, you know, we get people who come in from other countries. Mm-hmm. Um, when I talk to, like, my uh, 
to, to Indian or Chinese, you know, immigrants. They're like, well, yeah, mom and dad were right there, <laughs> you know, or mm-hmm. mom and dad came and stayed or we moved him into our house. Like they don't even, they don't even think about it. It's just like, this is, this is the way it's going to be, Yeah, you know? And I think, and I think about my upbringing, right? I was brought up in this small community and I realized that my parents weren't alone either. They had a whole group of people who took care of me and my sister. Mm-hmm. And that was very helpful to them. You know, um, my, my mom was, my grandparents live in El Salvador. She was out here, the only woman from her family. And she had my uncle, but, you know, he was doing his own thing. And yeah. she basically had to take care of him. <laughs> yeah. And then take care of my other two uncles when they came. So even even within my house, it wasn't necessarily a, a nuclear household, you know? Yeah. I, I lived with my mom and dad, and it was my sister, but there was also my uncles mm-hmm. who lived with us. So it was funny, like, when I would go to school and interact with people who were not Salvadorian, they found it very weird. And I'm like, it's not really weird. It's like everyone else does it. <laughs> yeah, like, I've, yeah, I lived with my uncles growing up, and I, I shared, like, a home with other people <laughs> growing <Yeah>. up. <laughs> I, I don't know. It's, like, not that weird to I don't know. It's definitely not weird to me. And, like, I, I had a babysitter, like, because my parents, like, both worked full time. So I had, right. like, a lady that would, like, pick me up from school. And then, like, I basically was, was with her for, like, almost 10 years and my brother as well so we ended up establishing a support network with their own their own family and yeah it's like i don't know i'm just like yeah. you only have like three family members weird like <laughs> which is funny so like my my husband he's he's white like his family's been here for generations like four or five generations Ooh, how is that oh sorry i'm like very interested in that <laughs> <laughs> interested in the fact of like that <laughs> i mean having um, a so white yeah. partner <laughs> so um so it's funny when we were talking about families right he he comes from a very different situation you know his parents divorced when he was like 10 but he really the only people that were that raised him were his mom and dad mm-hmm. essentially you know, if he'd go visit his uncles and stuff and his grandparents, you know, who live in different areas of the country, but it was only mom and dad. Yeah. And I found that so weird. I'm like, what do you mean you only have two uncles? <laughs> yeah. Like, this, is, this is weird. <laughs> what do you mean you don't have a big family? What do you mean you only have three cousins? Mm-hmm. Like, I can't even name all mine. <laughs> I can't. I genuinely can't. I don't know them. I don't know them all. I would like no. to. <laughs> I would like to get to know all of them, but like I don't know all of them. Sorry, I don't. Yeah. So yeah, so so yeah, he came from a very small family. So for him it was it was very straight it was it was it was strange to him because it wasn't, you know, what he lived in mm-hmm. or lived with. Um, versus me, who was like, Oh yeah, I lived with my uncles and stuff and you know, it was a big happy family. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um it's always been interesting when I interact with people. And then but then when I interact with, you know, people from outside of the US, it's like, oh no, that's normal. <laughs> yeah. 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 I I I've been wondering so you're you're really active on on Twitter and on Central American Twitter. So 
what has been one of your favorite things that has like emerged from that online space and also just like as something that you'd wish you'd be able to see more of i don't know i i we basically started because of central american twitter like all of this engagement like really really connected sam and i and then we just were like oh my god like look at all this dope shit happening we should make dope shit so how about you so what was interesting about central american twitter was you know um a lot of my longtime friends are people that i grew up with um in you know the seventh day adventist salvadoran community mm-hmm. so we have a lot of the same experiences and we're having all these conversations about you know racism like erasure you know whatnot and when i got onto twitter i realized there was people across the country having the same conversations we were i was like wait a minute like i've had this conversation <laughs> like face to face with my friends and so i really like the fact that you know the hashtag or you know or twitter has connected us in that way it's like oh wait like it wasn't just me or my friend group having this important conversation there's multiple people who are i wish something that i wish would be improved upon was probably like calling ourselves out yeah you know i feel like um within the central american space it's funny that salvadorans will call out mexicans for hegemony <laughs> but we are very but, but yeah we also, yeah, <laughs> yeah we, we definitely take up a lot of, chunk space. of the space we yeah. do mm-hmm. and i think it's important to be self-critical of ourselves as well mm-hmm um, and I see it sometimes, you know, people will tweet it out or whatever. It's like, don't forget, you know, there's other people like, you know, like, let's take, you know, TPS, for example, you know, when TPS ended for 200,000 Salvadorians. It already ended for other people before. Sorry. Exactly. That like upset me. <laughs> yeah, no, but it was funny. It was like, that was the trigger, right? It was like, oh, you know, it ended for all the Salvadorians, but it has ended for other people people also it's like it's not just salvadorians who were protected under yeah. this there was whole other communities who were mm-hmm. things like you know we'll call the i one thing is like calling out like mexican like nationalism or machismo, machismo or misogyny it's like well there's a lot of misogyny in el salvador too and definitely it needs to get checked <laughs> definitely needs to get checked for sure it needs to get checked <laughs> So yeah. I think it's it's hard to have those kind of conversations over Twitter, especially because, you know, we want to keep a united front and it kind of becomes this, like, how do we keep a united front, front, but also call ourselves out? Yeah. No, it's hard. It's really hard. I mean, Sam and I are still trying to, like, figure that out ourselves. And being this, like, woke person is, like, impossible. It's hard. It's it's yeah. not possible so i don't know i mean i'm glad that that's like something that is like on your mind because it's something that's constantly on our mind too because it's like central american twitter is like very like northern triangle honduran guatemalan and salvadoran but right. like where's belize where's costa rica, costa rica. yeah where's panama where where's are they Nicaragua. yeah and nicaragua yeah. like where are they <laughs> yeah. 
So hopefully it gets better. And yeah, I mean, it's also up to us to be able to like bring in those voices, which is like what at least we want to do and are trying to do. Right. I was lurking on your page and I was trying to be like, okay, let's see what's up. Uh, (laughs) And I'm like very interested in like your makeup skills because... You're over here like, I'm going to be like with my white lab coat, but like with my highlight and my, um, (laughs) all my palettes and like, (laughs) so I'm very interested because I actually love makeup. I'm someone that actually I like very, very rarely wear makeup, but I don't, I wish I like wore more, but I just like, I'm lazy. I'm just like, it's the flojera that, that stops me. Uh, No, I have like three palettes, but like very rarely use them. So I wanted to ask you, is there a palette that you have been wanting to splurge on, but have not done so yet? And is there a budget palette that you highly recommend because you seem to be up on there with the high end and the low end shit, which I appreciate. Yeah, so I've been eyeing Natasha Denona palettes. Yo, they're so beautiful, but why are you a hundred dollars? <laughs> I know. Yes. I know. <laughs> oh, but they're beautiful, man. They're so beautiful. They look like colored earth. I don't know how to describe it. Yeah, I do. I eye them. I see the reviews. You know, some of my favorite beauty gurus use them. They're like, they're so fantastic. And I'm like, but I can't spend $129 on a palette. I, I can't know. bring myself to do that. I'm I just, know. I cannot. And I think it's because I have eyeshadows is my favorite thing i don't know Mm -hmm. if you've noticed my instagram (laughs) Uh, it's my favorite thing i i love playing with color and i think eyeshadow allows me to do that um so yeah that would probably be the one thing i would want to splurge on Mm is one of those natasha denona palettes um an affordable palette that i really enjoy is the um the it's my ray ray vh cosmetics palette mm-hmm. which is not just eyeshadows but it also has contour and highlight shades mm-hmm. and i really like that palette like i it's funny i i bought that palette because um it's my ray ray actually happens to be from somerville massachusetts oh. and so weirdly enough i think we were both the same we both were in the same year in high school mm-hmm. um, but we never had classes together and i ended up leaving um my high school, I, I ended up moving out of Somerville. So I transferred out from Somerville to Burlington, Massachusetts in mm-hmm. the middle of my high school years. But I actually know her, her really good friend. Wow. Um, but yeah, but it's a really good palette. Okay. I was like, yeah. And I, I think it was like 22 bucks or something. Yeah. And I think 16 eyeshadows, three highlights, three contours. Wow. That it's is a pretty like a good bargain. very good bargain. Wow. I know. <laughs> I definitely see that you are, like, really into doing, like, colors. So the one thing that I've just, like, never been able to conquer has been, like, eyeliner. And I, like, don't wear eyeliner. Like, I just, like, refuse to wear eyeliner, which is, like, I'm trash. (laughs) I suck. But I usually focus on eyeshadows and highlight and lip color. I'm, like, super into lip colors and stuff. I'm really into, um, in terms of, like, lips, I'm actually deviate more toward Korean, um, makeup because they have very very interesting like approaches to like lip lipsticks and lip stains and like lip gels and lip jellies and like all this shit and it's really cool 
So I, I kind of, like, really enjoy looking at, like, their... I feel like they have the top-of-the-line, like, lip technology over there, so... <laughs> right, and then it gets, like, you know, in Asia, South Korea is mm-hmm. the purveyor of beauty products. And a lot of their focus is always, like, skincare. It's always about, like, how do I make my skin look healthy, which is very different from Americans, which is, how do we cover it up? How do we make it look <laughs> as matte and as dry as possible? Which I'm totally not for. I I hate that look. I hate that look on myself. I have very dry skin, which sucks because I live in Massachusetts where the temperature is always changing. It, you mm-hmm. literally go from 42, right now it's 42 degrees out here, to like 10. Damn. Like there's, there's a, in a, in, in 24 hours. That's gross. So you're scared. Your skin takes a beat, a beating. I'm sure it does. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm really super, super into skincare. So I'm yeah. always like trying to moisturize. I'm always trying to exfoliate. I'm always trying to do a little mask here and there. I am very, very into moisture on my face because I have very dry skin. And up in the Bay Area where I am now, it's definitely a lot more moist, but down in Los Angeles, it's like very dry. It's like desert climate. Yeah, my skin like needs hydration. (laughs) And I'm just like a very dry person. Like my hair is really dry. Like my skin's super dry. My face is dry. My lips are always dry. Like everything about me is just like, I have a dry ass personality. Everything about me is fucking dry. So, (laughs) you know. I, I don't know, I'm, I'm very interested because no one, like, I feel like with Central American Twitter, I kind of, I love that we talk about, like, all these identity sh- issues and shit, but I'm like, can we, like, talk about, like, dumb stuff and, like, cool, like, fun, like, I like that you're just, like, retweeting, like, makeup pictures like, constantly. <laughs> like, I want to just talk about makeup. Like, why can't we just, like, talk about, like, uh, anime or, like, why can't we just, like, talk about, like, all these things from, like, a Central American lens? Like, why does it always have to be identity? I mean, I get it. Identity is important, but so it's, like... Right. But that's not all that we are. Yeah. Yeah, was, yeah, I mean, it was interesting for me and makeup, like, kind of... I've always been into it, you know, in high school, in high school and stuff, but I wasn't very good at it. And it wasn't until my second year of graduate school, um, we do, there's this big thing that happened your second or first year of graduate school. It's called the qualifying exam. Mm-hmm. It's one of the most stressful things in the world. And so I basically, for my qualifying exam, I had to prepare a scientific project. So I had to read the literature, come up with a hypothesis, come up with a, a set of experiments and defend this in front of a committee. Oh, yeah. Ooh. And yeah. So I had to take time off of lab and stuff like that to prepare for this. And there was so many days where I spent hours and hours and hours reading and reading and reading. And my head was so full of scientific knowledge that I needed a break. And so what I found as a break was watching beauty videos on YouTube. <laughs> I started following these like beauty gurus on YouTube and I started acquiring makeup. I was like, oh, that palette looks nice. Let me buy that. Let me buy that highlight. Through that, I kind of started playing and experimenting more with makeup. And it's probably become like my, it's my creative outlet. And my way of de-stressing, of dealing with 
super intelligent people who talk about science all the time, having to think about science all the time. It's just like, I can put that away, put my makeup out, you know, pull out an eyeshadow palette, create a look, and then put it out in the world through Instagram, Twitter, whatever social media I have. That's so cool. Do you have any mm-hmm. favorites that you follow? Like, who do you follow in terms of, like, makeup beauty gurus type of thing? There's a there's a long list. Like, I constantly find new people also. Someone I really enjoy watching is probably Jackie Aino. Yeah, when yeah, she's... Jackie, Jackie. Jackie, Jackie, Jackie. <laughs> Jackie, Jackie, Jackie. <laughs> yeah, Jackie, Jackie, Jackie. <laughs> so I actually found her. She's one of the first YouTubers I found while I was... Um, preparing for my qualifying exam i like that she one calls out people calls out makeup brands Mm -hmm. um for non-inclusiveness but she's also really fun yes she Um, is she's very fun she's a very bright personality her videos are very high quality especially at this point she's one person that i like to follow and i watch her videos all the time like i get so happy when you know she uploads although sometimes she uploads and it's like one in the morning (laughs) over here and i'm like oh i have to wait to watch the video (laughs) oh yeah (laughs) i always forget just like time zones are a thing and and so much of central american twitter is active like at i don't know from like (laughs) like 8 to 10 or 8 to 11 and then i'm like by then though east coast people are like long asleep (laughs) (laughs) well it's so funny when i first got into central american twitter i would stay up Oh He's no! Like, oh, up. <laughs> and it was like two or three in the morning. I'm like, I should go to bed. <laughs> What's wrong with me? <laughs> and like, I can't be part of the dialogue. I have to go to bed. <laughs> I know. And yeah, I feel like that sometimes too. I'm like, I'll miss something. I'm like, damn it! It's like I can't reply 15 hours later, even though I have something to say. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, do you want to do a despedida with me? Or, I mean, you don't need to do it with me. I have not done it, or I haven't done a bendición. Sam was like, you should do it. And I'm like, I don't have anything nice to say to anybody because I'm the mean one in the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> but I guess I can do it. You can do it with me if you want. Um, I don't really... Um- yeah, well, it, it Sam, the way that he's the one that wanted to do it since, like, the first episode. It's about, okay. <laughs> I know, like, not me. <laughs> it's just, like, self-care and him just wanting to, like, take a moment at the end of the show, especially if we talk about, like, heavy topics. So, uh, I can I can do it. I can try to be, like, you can talk. I can try to whisper, like, Sam. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, I'll start. I'll start. I think what really, what you really hammered, and I think a point that you really made, Olivia, was the idea of people of color, femmes of color, people who are doing usually extraneous, un, well, not unneeded, but they are just assumed to take on all of this labor of raising children, of doing this and doing that, as well as juggling their own personal life. And something that you said was building a support network. I would say that this is slightly different from building building a community with central american twitter we definitely built a community but that's online but you know as much as i would love to call up you olivia or call up wilfred or whoever you you can't help me if i'm if i have a cold and i need medicine or if i have a kid and i need babysitting or something came up like you can't come here so i think the idea of building a localized support network is very important i know we're all in the twitter sphere and building our friendships through the internet but having people with you for real life situations is like extremely 
extremely important and sometimes people only feel comfortable through the internet and it allows you to build a social rapport on your own terms and at a slower pace but it, it is very important to make sure that you have someone checking in on you in real life mm-hmm. and having I mean someone that you can have to genuinely like embrace if you're feeling sad a shoulder to cry on and this can be your mom this could be your dad your tias your tios your neighbor your best friends or anybody and I think it is really important to make sure that you have someone you have ride or dies like you have people like in your life that are gonna fuck people up for you help you fuck shit up too in real life so that's something that I definitely want to do once I move down from the Bay Area back to LA is to build a more localized support network because I genuinely feel at least right now currently I have more of a support network in the Bay Area than I do in LA which is crazy to me because it's like that's like where my roots are but as in, in terms of like the people that I'm closer to I'm really happy that at least up here as of now I have a strong network of people that I can genuinely rely on to check in on me in my own home or will come through for me if I really need something like if I just ripped my pants the other day <laughs> and my best friend Mirta is gonna take me to buy some pants so I'm pretty stoked because I only have one pair of pants right now because I left all my pants at my mom's house so (laughs) that's like my I'm glad that I have that type of support right now I think you know a lot of people have sometimes this mentality of like they kind of let their pride get the best of them and like I'm just gonna keep this to myself I'm bothering someone that's something like I have had to deal with and my parents have had to deal with and I've had to completely get rid of that kind of mentality and be like, no, when you actually need help, and this is in, in my field where I do research and stuff, but also in life, it's like, it's fine to ask for help. There's, you know, and if you have that support system, there's gonna be someone there to reach out to you. I, it's funny, I've had many people reach out to me through Twitter and like, you know, they're amazed, like, oh my God, you know, you have, a, you know, you're getting your PhD, how did you do it? And I'm like, well, I didn't do this on my own. You know, I have a whole group of people who were there to support me. So, um, for anybody out there who's interested in pursuing something like a PhD, don't think that you have to do it on your own. That's not the right mentality to have. Yes, that was beautiful. <laughs> this is a great bendición. Thank you for assisting me because I'm not Sam, the self-care uh, guru. But thank you. thank No, but thank you so much. Like, this is amazing that you're, like, even just, like, down. Like, hey, some person hit you up on the internet. Like, you want to talk to me? And you were like, yeah, let's go. So I, I mean, also, do you have any questions for me? I probably should have put this in earlier. But do you have any questions for me or for Sam, even though Sam's not here, um, um, about the podcast? I like, I kind of forgot about that. But um, so I think I'm gonna ask you the same question that Patrick, who, what Patrick asked Sam, um, what is your goal with the podcast and and what do you envision i'm gonna be pretty blunt in saying that i'm i think i have very selfish goals with this podcast yeah i mean which is valid yeah like like uh i i definitely have had many many things within my own family that don't allow me to feel it as fully as like someone with that has two salvadoran parents or parents that maybe immigrated when they were a bit older than my dad like i don't have this like musical like what you said with like your seventh day adventist the music is like not the same like my dad doesn't know anyone any salvadoran Mm -hmm. like artists because he didn't i don't know he just doesn't remember them and he's it was so long ago or like the food my mom my mom doesn't know how to cook central american food because she 
she's Mexican, so she just like makes she makes like platanos, like that's it. Like, <laughs> <laughs> which I'm like, yeah, I'm down for the platano. And I mean, so it's like a lot of my Central American identity is very it is it is through friendships. It is through through the my favorite pupusa place that I've been going to since I was like five. That's like a few blocks from my house. Like I take in the culture in like very different ways and I this is like something that I have been trying to do for myself because I have been able to reestablish a, a a healthier relationship with my with my father. So now I'm just like realizing like this is how what I've missed out on. So my goal for the podcast is to become a more fully realized person. Um, uh, understand like how my father has like lost full sale and how ultimately this show is like about me really trying to understand my dad like in a real last sense so it's that i just want to work hard and like get shit done for you it's it's a way of of you know capturing that salvadorian identity and i think for me that was kind of why i you know stayed on twitter when i found central american twitter because to be frank, there's not a lot of Central Americans that I know who are doing PhDs in, in STEM. Um, so even though my family, I'm, I'm an hour away from my family, um, I don't get to see them all the time. And most of the people that I'm surrounded with are not Central American. And, and I, I miss that. I miss that kind of connection. Thank you so much, though. Genuinely, like, thank you so much for just, like, doing this. And... I'm just like really glad that people are like down and people are like engaging and that you are like really doing your thing and you have amazing people around you mm-hmm. and that you're like all the way up in Massachusetts. Like that's really north. <laughs> yeah. I used to think Massachusetts was below New York because I'm like not smart in terms of geography. <laughs> I was like, I'm like, yeah, it's like D.C., Boston and then New York, right? Like, and then Maine. No, no. I mean, Maine is up more north. Okay, I know that. I know that. But no, I literally learned this. Like, I'm not even lying. Like, in the last year, I like the way I think about the East Coast is that like completely. All right, thank you so much, Olivia. We're gonna say goodbye. But thank you. Yeah, You're no great. Problem. You're, like, so wise (laughs) and, like, smart. All right. Everyone, have a really great week. I hope y'all are doing well. And I hope you do well as well on your PhD, Olivia. I hope you, like, graduate strong in two to three years. That's what I'm hoping for. (laughs) And, like, fuck shit up and make people feel better and vaccines exist vaccines are real Mm -hmm. i'm sure you know vaccines are a real thing even though people think they're not anymore they're still real (laughs) so get vaccinated please please get vaccinated and if you have any questions come to me i'll answer them don't go on blogs from random who (laughs) anti-vaxxer yeah oh what is what are you what are your handles your twitter and instagram handles so uh, my Twitter handle is Olivia K. Umana, uh, and my Instagram handle is Scientist in Makeup. Awesome. Okay. Everyone have a good week. Goodbye. Bye. <laughs> Sorry.